Okay, so we're going to be covering Joshua's 1, 3, 4, and 5 today. We're skipping two. We're going to look at it next week. But I figured I would start this series by uh, letting you know what my childhood fear was. Roller coasters. So I don't know, how many of you like the roller coaster thing? Uh, A good number of you. How many of you are afraid of the roller coasters? Yes, good, brave people and smart people. Um, You guys know that things like that were not made for human beings, even though human beings... Anyway, so uh, I'm over that a little bit now, so I enjoy riding on some of them, but I still have a little bit of the fear. But when I was a little kid, I went to amusement parks every summer. I lived in Southern California, and there were a number of amusement parks down there. There was Knott's Berry Farm, and at Knott's Berry Farm, they had the log ride. I don't know if they still call it that, but uh, that's what I called it back then. And it was called the log ride. And the log ride is just a plastic slide filled with water and plastic logs that float in it. Okay. So you've experienced this. It's like a flume ride they're called sometimes. And I never understood it because the whole point of one of these log rides was to pretend like it's a nice, easy, casual float around the thing. And the next thing you know, you're dying. Because you've gone off a hill and you're just falling for like six hours into, the, into nothingness. And then there's a splash at the bottom and everybody thinks that the splashing thing is cool. I didn't like it at all. The log ride I was terrified of. I did not want to do this thing. All I knew is that when I was like little, 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 like maybe two or three, my parents convinced me to go on it. And it freaked me out so much that I didn't do any roller coasters like ever after that. Uh, so I was, you know, this is the log ride at Knott's Berry Farm. Then uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain had Revolution, which was the first looping roller coaster. Amazing roller coaster that I never wanted to go on. And then there was Disneyland. Now Disneyland, I mean, come on. It's the happiest place on earth. It's the place where little kids go to have their day. But they also have this evil thing called Space Mountain. It's not just a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster in the dark to freak you out even more. And so uh, as a kid, I remember some of my friends would come to school and they'd be like, we went to Disneyland this weekend. It was awesome. I did Space Mountain like four times. And I was like, you're crazy. Because the roller coaster thing, they freaked me out. I didn't want to do it. So it was always, we'd go to the amusement parks and we'd go to one of the roller coasters and my, my mom and my sister were like, let's do the log ride. And I was like, I don't want to do the log ride. And my dad said, I'll wait with you, son. And I was like, that's good. And so my dad would stay with me. And then my sister and my mom would go do the thing. They'd do Revolution. They'd do the Viper. They'd do whatever it was. And my dad would just stay with me out, you know, waiting, waiting. And I was like, you know, I'm so glad that my dad is, is caring for me like this. And then one day, one day we went to Disneyland and they had just opened a brand new ride called Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. I don't know if you've ever been to Disney World, but it's like one of the oldest roller coasters they have there. But it was just opening. That, I was the, that's how old I am. It was just opening. And my dad said to me, okay, son, I'll go on it with you. And all of a sudden that changed. All my fear about the roller coaster changed. And the only thing that was different was my dad saying, I'll go with you. Now, I learned later that um, when he said, I'll go with you, that was really saying two things. One, of course, it was saying, I will be your companion. I will comfort you in this ride. The other thing it was saying is, okay, Jeff, if you're willing to go on it, I'll go on it too. Because the reason my dad waited with me all those times is that he didn't like the roller coasters either. He was freaked out about them. And so then I learned, oh, I'm not alone. My dad also is scared about these things. Anyway, so I went on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad with my dad and I hated it. And four years later, I went on 
it again with my dad, and then it was okay. So the thing is that everything changed. My motivation changed. My heart changed. Everything about it, except for the fact that it still scared me. But it, was, it all changed with one little phrase. When my dad said he would do it with me. When my dad said he would be with me. The with me concept changed everything. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next five weeks. Because the book of Joshua is a book where God says that same thing to Joshua. In uh, chapter 1 of Joshua, we read the theme verse of the whole book. Verse 9. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And it says this. God says to Joshua, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. This is the, the baseline principle for this passage. God says to Joshua, don't be afraid because I will be with you no matter where you go. Wherever you go, I will be with you. That promise from God to Joshua sets the stage for everything that we're going to be covering for the next few weeks. Now, I got to be honest with you. I still have other fears. I still have other fears in my life. I mean, as a pastor, I constantly fear all sorts of things. I fear that some holiday weekend is going to show up and you guys won't. I, I fear that, you know, the finances are going to go out the window. I, I fear that some of you are going to make a bad decision that influences someone else in here. I fear all that kind of stuff. Plus, I also have the stupid, normal, everyday human fears, not just the pastor fears. The fears like I might say something up here that would embarrass me. The fears that I might say something out there that would embarrass me. The fears that I might knock on my neighbor's door to ask them for a favor and then realize it's the wrong neighbor. I've asked the wrong person and I forget who they are and all that. I have all the same fears that anyone else has. But I will tell you this. There's one thing that the more I get it ingrained into me, the better the fears are. God is with me. And based on that one principle over the next five weeks, based on that one principle, it's my hope that as you and I begin to learn that God is with us, that over the next five weeks, you and I will become fearless. And if not that far, at least that we will fear a little less. And that's the goal. So go with me on this journey, and uh, as we get started, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory of the book of Joshua, because we're going to be looking at Joshua, but you need to know why we picked Joshua for this. A little bit of backstory. Okay, so uh, remember the first books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then we come to Joshua. The first books of the Bible tell a story that for our purposes really begins with a guy named Abraham, and so God talks to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God, and I'm going to bless you. And Abraham says, well, that doesn't sound too bad. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a whole lot of children. And Abraham says, that doesn't sound too bad. Do I have to raise them? God says, no, I'm no. He eventually God only gave him just a couple children, but then a great nation came out of him. So God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation, and you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. And Abraham says, okay, this is a good idea. I like this. I'll go along with this. And God says, there's just two things you need to do. Number one, you need to leave because there's a land where all this is going to happen. There's a land in which I will work to form a foundation to bless the whole world. And it's not here. You have to leave here to go to there. And you don't know where it is, but I'll show you along the way. So Abraham, leave. First rule, you can't do it here. You got to go to where I show you. Second rule, you got to be circumcised. 
And it's like, whoa. Abraham's like, wait a minute. Let's talk about this for a little bit. And God says, okay, here's the deal. I own where you live and I own your body. And so if I tell you that something needs to happen with your body, then you're going to go ahead and do it because this is how our relationship works. I'm your God. You're my guy. Okay? And Abraham says, all right, we'll do this thing. And so he does it. And so God creates a covenant, a relationship with Abraham that begins there. The covenant says, I will be your God. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. So go where I will show you and I own everything about you. That's basically how God works it out with Abraham. So Abraham does. So that's the beginning of this story. The next phase of the story is Egypt. 400 years later or so, God's people, Abraham's descendants, are now living in Egypt and they're slaves. And so it's Abraham and then there's Egypt. They're slaves. They've been there for hundreds of years. They've almost forgotten God, but they cry out to him and say, would you not forget us? And God says, okay, I won't forget you. I'll do something about it. And so then he sends Moses and that's the third stage. Abraham, then Egypt, then Moses. God sends Moses and Moses, you know the story. Moses is the guy, let my people go. He stands before Pharaoh. He brings in all the plagues. He's got the big stick that turns into a snake when he throws it down. You've probably seen the 10 commandments or some derivative movie or something. So you probably understand Moses. If you don't understand Moses, read the Bible. It's really interesting. But anyway, so here's Moses and he, he's the guy who comes to save the people. So there was Abraham, then there's Egypt, then there's Moses and he's saving the people. Now here's the deal. If most of you, if any of you know the story of the Bible, you probably know what happens after that. After Moses says, let my people go and they all leave Egypt, what you probably remember is 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Right? You're probably familiar with this. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Moses saves them out of Egypt, but they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. There's a problem though. If that's the narrative you remember, you're missing something because it did not take them 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land. It took them a couple months. But what they did is when they left Egypt, the first thing that they did is they headed eastward and they came face to face with an area called the Red Sea. Or depending on translation, it could be the Reed Sea or the Sea of Reeds. But they come to this body of water and Pharaoh is chasing them and Moses says, it's time for us to move forward. And the people are like, how are we going to do this? We're going to die. And Moses says, I tell you what. And so he lifts his staff, the waters part, and the people walk through the sea on dry land they get to the other side and they march their way to a mountain called Sinai. And at that mountain, God meets them. He gives them the 10 commandments. He gives them the law to teaches them how to be good people to each other and how to be in this society that they're building. And they also learn how to build a tent, a very special tent called the tabernacle. That's going to be the mobile temple, the portable temple for God to be with his people wherever they go. They're not going to have this, you know, big edifice that then they go to that place. God's going to go with them wherever they go. And so they spend about a year at the mountain learning the rules, learning how to build this thing and then building this thing. And then they leave. And it takes them just a couple months to go from the mountain to the promised land. And there they are at the bottom south end of the promised land, ready to enter in. It's only been a year since they left Egypt a year and a little bit since they left Egypt and they're ready to enter into the promised land and they say, hang on a second, Moses. I want to spy the land. Let's send some spies up there to find out if it's really as good as God says it is. Now, whenever you second guess God, you're already on a downward path. 
And so God says, I've been planning this thing for hundreds of years, people. And they say, no, we want to spy it out first. And God says to Moses, okay, this sounds like a good idea. Let's go ahead and do it. So they send in 12 spies, one spy from each of the tribes. And they all go in there and they come back and they've got this amazing report. They have clusters of grapes in this new area, that uh, this land called Canaan. They have clusters of grapes that are so big and so heavy, it takes two men to carry one of them. Now that's a lot of grapes. That's a giant sort of situation. And and so they come back and they're like, this is an amazing situation. The, The food is giant. There's just a problem. The people are giants. The phrase they use is they say, we looked like grasshoppers to them. And 10 of these guys say, uh uh, it ain't gonna work. And they're afraid. And two guys, a guy named Caleb and a guy named Joshua, say, no, 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 let's do this thing. In fact, let me show you the passage where they say that. It's in the book of Numbers. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. And the land flows with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So here's here's Joshua and here's Caleb early on saying the problem here is fear. You're afraid of the people, but we've got God on our side. They don't listen. All the other tribes, I mean, Caleb and Joshua are outnumbered. So all the other tribes, they say, no, we're too afraid. We're not going to do it. Moses says to God, they're too afraid. They won't do it. And God says, fine, wander in the desert for 40 years until all you scared people die, and then we'll try it again. And that's what happens. You see, the real narrative is Abraham, then Egypt, then Moses, then fear, then the desert. And it's the moment of fear that causes them to spend their 40 years in the desert. And now we come to the end of the desert wanderings. All those guys are dead. Moses is dead. Joshua and Caleb are still alive. And the book of Joshua is the story of what God has to do now that they are coming back into the promised land. And their problem before was what? Fear, right? And so that means when they enter the promised land this time, God's number one thing that he has to accomplish with them is to conquer their fears. And so the book of Joshua, for us and for the people of Israel, is like a manual. It's God training his people to overcome their fear. And that's the key thing because it was fear that kept them from going in and now God says it's not going to be fear that keeps you from going in this time. God starts with Joshua. He says, Joshua, you're one of my brave guys. Joshua, we're going to get this thing. Joshua, you're strong and brave. In fact, go to the first chapter of the book of Joshua. Let's read it and let's see how it all begins. It says this, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses Moses, my servant, is dead. Now that's just a beautiful way for God to begin this thing. Because we just read verse 1, after Moses is dead, then God said, Moses is dead. It's a pretty interesting phrase there, I think. It's as if the author of this book really wants to emphasize the fact that Moses ain't here no more. 
It's really like they want to emphasize the fact that every single thing they have known when it comes to leadership is evaporated. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you. You see, things are changing. Things are changing for Joshua. And and this is really our problem, isn't it? Whenever things are changing or we're worried about things changing, that's when the fear shows up, right? Things are changing. I don't want it to change. I don't know if I can handle this change. That's when the fear shows up. And so God says to Joshua right at the beginning, he says, Moses is dead. And Joshua's like, I know that. And God says, yeah, but I just need to remind you that I know it. Moses is dead. Now, you. Now then you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. That's the second thing. For 40 years they've been in the desert. If you've been in a desert for 40 years, for 40 years, it doesn't matter how good that other land is, the change from desert to promised land is always unsettling. If you have been somewhere for 40 years, it doesn't matter how good the other thing is, it's hard to change. God says, listen, Moses is dead, now it's you. God says, listen, the desert is gone, now it's the promised land. You're about ready to start something brand new. There are two things that are totally new. We've got a new leader and we've got a new land. But some things aren't new. Look at this. He says, verse 3, I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses. There are two things there. God says, I'm going to give you this land. That's, a, that's always been God's plan. And then he says, as I promised Moses, now he's promising Joshua. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged for the Lord your God. God will be with you wherever you go. Man, I would love to just spend weeks on this one little section here because there's this part where God says to Joshua, listen, if you follow my word, you get to experience my will. My will for you is blessing. And if you follow my word, you get to experience my will. And that's an amazing promise. I would love to spend a lot of time on that. We, we just finished up the book of Job. And we know from the book of Job that just because God promises us some kind of blessing doesn't necessarily mean that our blessing, the one that I, that I expect to have, is the blessing that God really has in mind for me. And so here's the deal. Listen, I don't know exactly what what it means to experience God's will in your life and what kind of blessing he wants to bring into your life. But I know that the if statement says, if you follow his word, then you get to experience the blessings of his will. Now, I'd love to spend a lot of time with that. I can't. I'd also love to spend a lot of time on the whole notion of discouragement and fear and how uh, he says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or be discouraged. And so strength and courage are exact opposites to fear and discouragement. I'd love to talk 
talk about that a little bit. But we just don't have time. I've only got five weeks to get through this whole book, and we're going to erase it. And guess what? I'm going to draw your attention to the things I think are the most important for this, especially when it comes to the lessons we need to learn about fear. First of all, there are things that are different in the life of Joshua, but there are three things that are not different. Number one, God's provision. I want to ask you to remember always when you're in a place of fear, remember God's provision. See, God says to Joshua, I will give you this land. That means God says, I'm the one responsible for the giving of things. You're not responsible for the taking of things. I'm responsible for the giving of things. Joshua, I will give you this land. The second thing I want you to remember is remember God's promises. God says to Joshua, I was a person who promised Moses, and now I'm promising you. And I promised your forefathers, and now I'm promising you. Remember God's promises. They haven't changed. And then thirdly, remember God's presence. God says, I was with Moses. Now I'm with you. And I will be with you wherever you go. You see, already at the beginning of the book of Joshua, we learn the first principle for overcoming our fears. The first principle for becoming fearless is to remember. Not everything is changing. Some things are staying the same. Remember the difference between the things that are changing and the things that are staying the same. Then we skip over chapter 2. We'll get to that next week. But in chapter 3, now the test shows up. And there are a few little tests that God brings to the people to try to help them take their first literal steps into a fearless life. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's just start reading there. It says, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. (laughs) Neither of the priests. None of the people have been this way before. Joshua's never been this way before. No one's been this way before. But they say, if you follow the ark, you'll be on the right path. Just hang on to that. Then you'll know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. That's about 1,000 yards, uh, 10 football fields. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the ark of the covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. I just love that. Go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you. Oh, I I love that. Hang on a second. God told Joshua, I will be with you. Joshua says to the people, God is with you. This isn't God saying, I'm with you, Joshua, and only you, Joshua. This is God saying, Joshua, I'm with you and with all my people. And so then Joshua just passes it on to the others. He says, God is with all of us. This is how you're going to know it. And that he will certainly drive out before you all the people of the land. Verse 11, see, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap 
So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great heap a distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he'd appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial for the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. I love this. So what's happening is now they are going to enter into the promised land. And what you need to realize is that this is a repeat of a previous miracle of God. You see, when they left Egypt, you remember what happened? They left Egypt, they came to the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, and then they were, they were hindered by this body of water, and the Pharaoh's army was chasing them. And they're like, what do we do? And Moses raises his arms, and the waters part, and the people go through on dry land. It's an amazing story. But this one's different. Three things are different in this version of the story. Three things are different this time around with Joshua. Number one, they're not following Moses. He's dead. They're following the ark. The ark leads the way. This time, it's the ark, not Moses with his staff raised above the waters. It's it's not even Joshua. It's the ark. Number two, this time, the waters part after they take their first steps. Before, Moses just separates the waters and everybody goes through on dry land. Now, it's the priests. They step. Their feet touch the water's edge and the water recedes. Now, listen, uh, there's, it's well documented in Israel that uh, certain times during the year, what will happen in the Jordan River is that there will be a mudslide at some part of the Jordan River and that mudslide will cause the river to stop there. It acts like a natural dam and it takes a while for the water to sort of come over the top of the dam and then wash it all away and then restart all over again. And so very frequently what will happen is the Jordan River will literally dry up because all the water will be piled up in a heap a while away and then all the water will just run down and you're left with just a a, a riverbed. That definitely happens. What's fascinating though is that no one back there could have known that it was going to happen now. That's why it's definitely a miracle. And even though there might be some sort of natural explanation for it, it's definitely a miracle. But here's the thing. 
It's a miracle that's happening at the flood stage of this river. These people are going to be nervous. These people are going to be scared. It's flooding. It's big. It's going to be, I mean, it's just like, you don't want to do this, but they step. And that's when things change. So first, the ark is leading. Number two, they had to take a step first before the waters part. And then number three, this time they're gathering stones to remember. They're gathering stones to remember. And I just love this picture. I love this picture. They're picking up stones from the middle of the river, right where the ark was standing. Can you imagine one of these days you see this tower of 12 big rocks, big river smooth rocks, and you look at those things and you're like, Dad, how did that happen? And Dad says, oh, dude, I got to tell you, Grandpa picked that stone out of the middle of the river and you're like, what? What happened there? And he's like, no, that stone right there, that's our family stone. Grandpa pulled that out of the middle of the river because God made the waters part. And it was dry ground when we walked through. Um, I would remember that. And see, here's the thing. This is how we begin to learn that the first step in overcoming your fears is to remember, to remember all that God has done. Now, see, they could remember the Red Sea. There's just one problem. Moses isn't here. And so if we're going to step into this river without Moses, that means we have to step into a place we've never been before. Wait a minute, Joshua. You're telling me I have to step first and then the waters will part? No, that's not the way it worked last time. The way it worked last time is God just showed up. Oh, and Moses was here. So Joshua, if you can't do what Moses did, I don't know if I want to follow you the way I followed Moses. But here's, here's the deal. These people conquered their fears because of one simple principle. They remembered what God had done before and they took one step farther. That's it. They remembered what God had done before, and they took one step farther. Only one. It only took one step, and that one step made all the difference. So that's God saying, see, I'm still with you. Here's the deal. Listen, you might have all kinds of fears, but it doesn't take a whole lot to become fearless. It just means starting with this memory, starting with this idea that God has been faithful before and he'll be faithful again, and I just need to take my step. So there are two more little tests that show up in their lives, and this is in Joshua chapter 5. Turn with me there, Joshua 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they'd crossed over, their hearts melted in fear and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Man, I love this. You have to get this picture. The people, when they entered this land 40 years ago, they saw giants and they were afraid of the giants. So they were so scared They ran away. Now they have come in. They've crossed one river. That's it. They've crossed one river and all the kings in the land are freaked out about them. And all the kings of the land are so scared that they cannot attack them. They will not attack them because God is on their side. 
And it's important that you know that the kings don't want to attack them because what happens next is interesting. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeath Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the wilderness on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the wilderness 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt died since they'd not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land he'd solemnly promised their ancestors to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place. And these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. And uh, so here's the deal. Check this out. This little thing here, you might say, what's this whole deal about circumcision? And I'm like, wait a minute. No, this is a huge deal. Do you know why? Because Abraham is dead, and Moses is dead, and all of these fathers are dead, and they have not kept up this tradition of circumcision, and God says, hang on a second, it doesn't matter how many people are dead, my promise is not dead. My covenant with you is not dead. My covenant with you is still now, so let's just start all over again. See, circumcision was way back with Abraham, the sign of God's covenant. And God says, hang on a second. I haven't left you. Hang on a second. I have not given up on my promise. Circumcision is just God simply saying his promise hasn't changed. His promise is still in effect. Now you have got to realize how beautiful this is. Because frankly, with every single soldier wounded like this, incapable of doing anything related to battle whatsoever. Is it not wonderful that the kings around them were too scared to attack? It's like God just created this little bubble of peace so that inside this little bubble of peace they could They could come back to God. They could get their act squared away with God. They could reestablish the covenant with God. And God was like, I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will keep all those other guys at bay. I'm just going to keep them freaked out about you. And they are not going to come and get you. Because guess what? We've got some business that we're going to do. Just you and me, God says, we've got some business that we're going to do. And while you're taking care of that business, I'm going to be on the borders protecting you. And then there's one final little test that they get here. And it's the Passover meal. Check this out. Uh, It says right here in verse uh, 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So that place has been called Gilgal, a word that kind of means to roll away uh, to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal, on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. There's this picture has always just fascinated me that 
they come and they celebrate the Passover. Remember, the Passover was the last meal they had in Egypt. They had the Passover meal. God passed over them with the angel that killed the firstborn in Egypt. God passed over them. He protected them. And that meal became the meal that identified them as the people. And then right after that, they left. And now they've just entered the promised land and they have just had the Passover. And now this Passover is no longer a departure Passover. This Passover is an arrival Passover. And they eat it, they have it, and then the next day they're like, oh, you know what? This land has so much produce. And they just eat from the produce of the land. And the next morning they wake up and there's no manna. And for 40 years... God has provided this miracle food every single morning just there on the ground for 40 years and now they come and it's no longer there. And listen, you might be one of those people who, like me, would be afraid. What what are we going to do? For 40 years, God has supplied this food for us. For 40 years, God has taken care of us. And now he's just taking it away. Now it's just gone. I thought we were entering into the promised land, and now God isn't providing for us anymore. What's happening, God? You might be like me, where you freak out, and you're like, God, why is this that you have suddenly removed your provision from my life? And God says, hang on a second. Open your eyes. Look. You don't need manna anymore because you've got grapes and grain and you've got all of this wonderful stuff that you didn't even have to till. It's just here for you. See, it's an amazing thing that we get all afraid over the loss of this tiny little insignificant thing that God did in our lives once before, but now God is moving us to something new and bigger and different and better, and we're afraid that we're losing that thing, but God says, open up your eyes, there's this thing. Ha! You don't need manna anymore. You've got this. And see, it's at that point that we need to remember God's provision, because it's not just that God has made us a promise, it's also that God has come through. And so we remember that his provision hasn't changed. He's still the God who provides. He's providing differently, but he's still the God who provides. Here's the deal. When it comes to fear, our first and most important step is to remember. Remember God's presence, remember his provision, remember his promises. Because see, if we remember where God has been in our lives before, we can face the unknown in the future. It just requires a little step from there to here. Now, you might be in a place in your life where it's kind of hard for you to trust this. And maybe your question is, okay, fine. God did that for the people of Israel. Fine. God did that for Joshua. Moses is dead. Joshua is the next guy. Of course, God is going to reach out to Joshua, but maybe God doesn't want to reach out to me. Maybe my life is different. Maybe my circumstances are different. Maybe God doesn't want to provide for me. Maybe God doesn't want to keep a promise to me. Maybe God's not even with me. And I want to tell you, In each one of these weeks, it's my intent to try to show you that the promises and the fear-conquering power that shows up in Joshua is still active in your life today. I want to show you Jesus' words. At the end of his time on earth, he's talking to his disciples, and he says this. I'll put it up. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you 
always to the very end of the age. Uh, A lot of times we use this verse because of the stuff in the middle. Go and make disciples. It's the verse that we call the Great Commission. It's the verse that we talk about churches needing to do this thing to spread the message of Jesus. But it doesn't make as much sense as it should unless you keep it in its bookends. The two bookends, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And I'm with you all the time, everywhere, no matter what. See, here's the deal. Jesus says, you know that God who parted the waters? (laughs) Me. You know that God who brought you guys out of Egypt? (laughs) Me. You know that God who died on a cross and rose again three days later? (laughs) Me. All authority. All authority. And I'm with you. There's just the thing in the middle. The thing in the middle that connects the one with authority to me is whether or not I qualify as one of those disciples, whether or not I qualify as one of those followers. Because the claim that Jesus himself makes, and if you can predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm just going to listen to whatever else you say. But this guy claims that all authority is his, and he is with his disciples always. Always. The only question for you, do I believe in his authority? That's a big question. Do I believe he's with his followers? That's a big question. And finally, am I one of them? As we close out our time today, I want to give you the opportunity to make that decision. And to say, Jesus, today, Today, I want to be one of your followers. Maybe this is your first time. Maybe it's your hundredth time. But today's the day you say, Jesus, I want to be your follower. I want to be in that camp. I want to be one of those disciples. I receive you. I believe in you. And so I'm going to receive you into my life, and I'm going to dedicate my life to you. And meanwhile, Jesus, would you just let me know you're with me? Because, see, we need to remember that the God who raises from the dead is the God who's with you if you're with him. Spend a few moments just in reflection. Open up your hearts to God. Where does this land for you today? And let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.